Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Maurizio, welcome to the War Room. Uh, Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure. All right. Uh, You have a book. It's a new book, October 2022, so we're in 2023, but that's still new as far as books are concerned. But it's on someone who gets a lot of books written about him, George Washington. Yeah. Why the why another George Washington book? Uh, okay, so for uh, more than one reason, the first is that as you flip through biographies or of the most famous men in America, more often than not, you realize that the man who's depicted there is probably more of a 20th century or 21st century man uh, than he is a 18th century man. And by saying that, I, I, I mean that sometimes historians and biographers want to create a George Washington that who is taller than anyone else, who is stronger, who is very confrontational, who is eager to jump into the arena and defeat every opponent, um, attitudes that for us make a lot of sense because a real man is supposed to be that kind of, you know, in your face uh, and challenging type of man. But the 18th century, especially when we consider the ideal of upper class uh, 18th century Virginian, uh, was a totally different era. So these men uh, perceived or tried to embody their masculinity by being uh, uh, civilized and polite and uh, self-effacement, for instance, what was one of the most, most touted virtues for them. It means that they would have never, ever uh, um, presented themselves as, you know, this confrontational uh, with this confrontational style. So, uh, and and then also when we take a look at the most superficial elements, you know, uh, the way that these people, these upper class people dressed was, you know, with silk and very, uh, and embroideries and, and flashy colors. And, and on top of that, they, they, they were experts in uh, fabrics and, and and also they uh, went on a spree and bought a uh, a huge number of items and and apparels and and clothing and so on and so forth, um, which we would today classify as immediately feminine. So there is a way that uh, the notion of masculinity has been reconceptualized over the centuries, and the eighteenth century. Uh, upper class man uh, didn't behave in the way we uh, we we are used to see real men behave. So, mm-hmm. uh, which of course they they at the same time, this, this George Washington was a warrior, 
So he had uh, he he wasn't joking or uh, messing around. He uh, participated in many battles, so he was a real commander and a soldier. He knew what brutality meant. But yet, at the same time, he wasn't that his physicality wasn't uh, as much as we um, as much what we expect from a um, actor portraying a soldier in a. Uh, a Hollywood movie today. So um, th there are nuances and uh, other aspects that need to be emphasized again. And those aspects probably uh, are not front and center in many biographies and uh, historical studies. Yeah. So one thing comes to mind there. Um, I am wearing a Magellan fishing shirt. I don't have my Crocs on today, but normally I'm wearing Crocs. Yeah. Washington would probably not be seeing anything as low, low key as I am. He would still probably be more dressed. I would look at him as like almost an elitist snob. Is this how he's dressed? Even for a casual day around the house, he probably dressed even better than us. And so thinking through how they dressed and lived and in the manners and stuff, whether it's right or wrong or whatever you think about that. It's just that they, it would probably foreign to us. If we could hop in a time machine, we might put on our suit and they'd be like, Oh, you're dressed like a commoner because we wouldn't have on the really expensive stuff. Yeah, that's more than correct. Ryan. Um, and, and also I will add to that, that not only they uh, had a, a lot of expertise, they knew uh, upper-class men, Virginians, knew what the fabrics were about, how much they costed them, how to uh, to source them, and they had connection in England, so they could mm, move around with, with, with self-confidence and expertise. Uh, but they could also go the opposite way. So uh, they were pretty much self-aware persons, and then they not only... Uh, had expertise on the latest in fashion and the qualities, and they like silk and they like uh, flashy colors and so on. But they could also go the opposite direction, for instance, and 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 dressing down uh, uh, as if it was a theater, dressing down as a Native American. The famous Indian shirt was something that. Uh, during battles, these, including the generals, the, the officers and soldiers, used to wear. So there is a theater in dressing up and at the same time in dressing down. So um, uh, probably George Washington would have had liked the, the Crocs or the T-shirts we wear today, but he could uh, easily dress down and uh masquerading himself as a uh native american in order to convey a precise message and the message being you know i know how to mm. enter the battle i know how to fight in a you know a very effective way i'm a, a marksman a rifleman and and you should get that immediately by looking at how i am dressed so uh, during his days and from the very moment he woke up in the morning, very early in the morning, George Washington 
started to don his high quality apparels and and to present himself a certain way to his neighbors and to the visitors who came to his home but also he could go the opposite direction so he could present himself as a commoner as a as a, a real soldier as someone who was confident in his own uh, individuality. He knew who he was. And so expertise, but also a keen sense of theater. And that, again, was something typical of the 18th century. Right. Whereas we might have a basic wardrobe that we kind of wear to the mall, to the grocery store, maybe to the park, Something like that. They might they would might have different levels even for that. They're more defined, whereas we might have a broader um of sense. And so as they're moving up and down, they, they kind of thought through it. And that's one thing in modern culture that for better or worse, we have lost is that clothing does convey a message. And on some level, it seems to be a pushback against this kind of high society mentality. And on some level, I get that, but I think the pushback can go too far as well, where you, you kind of just, you never take clothes seriously. And so you're, you're never aware of the representation that the clothes give and then almost get frustrated at anyone who accuses you of wearing clothes that represent something. It's like, well, they do represent something and we can debate the importance of that, but but there is there is something into what you're describing that Washington did that we still agree with today. It's just that we don't probably think about it as often and, and want to push back on those societal norms that they had in that time period. Yeah, well, the, the our time, which is the time of the off-the-rack apparels, uh, made us uh, lose our ability to, um, to, for instance, naming the fabrics and the types of fabrics we just go uh, to the mall and we might like the color and and this is it or we know that maybe the tie represents something more higher class or something but these very people had to be knowledgeable uh, about every details just because they couldn't go to the mall they had to to send letters to their uh, tailors or, or purveyors overseas and, they, and it was an enterprise it took time and a lot of money to get someone making a, uh, a, a piece of cloth for you. So you had to be precise. You had to be spot on about what you want to achieve through uh, the way you presented yourself to other uh, by dressing up or dressing down. So there is a component of expertise. There is a lot of time involved. It's interesting because, for instance, when you take a look at the letters that George Washington wrote during the uh, uh, the War of Independence. You, you may think, you know, he had more serious issues uh, to to be concerned about, and yet he spent uh, hours hours on end uh, detailing everything that he needed or simply wanted. So there is the expertise component, and also there is a uh, and and that again again uh, tells us something important about the 18th century writ large. Uh, there is also the uh, sense that not only clothing uh, convey messages, but also the way one behaves or the one the way one position himself or herself, uh, the manners where another 
uh, important text conveying uh, messages, but also conveying uh the 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 the, um, the sense of who the person was so uh these people were able to speak non-verbal languages uh which are to a large extent lost on us uh so it, there there is the clothing but there is also uh, the manners and the gestures and, and the postures, uh, the, the, um, just to give you a very quick example, uh, to, 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 to make a beautiful leg is uh, something that they used to do, which would be, you know, just gently bowing, taking a bow and being kind to the person who is in front of you. So making the beautiful leg is something that mm, reminds us of, of, of the dancer, something that may happen in ballets at the theater. But for them, it, it was part of the uh, daily routine. So they were self-conscious about the apparels they donned, but they were also self-conscious about uh, how to move uh, their bodies, how we kind of gesture was required or was uh, thought of as, uh, you know, uh, out of place and uh, how much, you know, to move your hands or uh, what kind of um, expression your face should, 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 should have and so on and so forth. So um, 18th century people were compelled, they were forced to spend hours on end to in order to become conscious about what they needed uh, just to survive and, and to get on. It, it wasn't an age of ready-made uh, gestures, standardized gestures or standardized clothing. It was everything was bespoke <laughs> in a way, uh, which involves a lot of money and time, of course, but also the side effect, the upshoot of all these is that uh, men like Washington or Jefferson or, or John Adams and all the other founders um, were refined, self-aware, knowledgeable individuals, especially when it comes to their own bodies and mm -hmm. uh, the persona they try to put on the stage. Yeah, there is a book somewhere over here, I think, on the Empress of China, uh, the ship they sent to China. And I remember reading, you know, they, they wanted to get, uh, this is, I think it was in 83, they sent the ship off. Anyways, um, and they wanted to get tea from China because they were mad at the Brits and, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to stick to the Brits. And uh, which on this podcast, we hold it, we, we endorse, we endorse a little good, good British jabbing every now and then. Um, we love our friends across the pond, but, you know, we got to, we got to, Got to give them a hard time. Um, but anyways, and so the, but one of the things that struck me was they wanted, and I can't remember how they phrased it in the book, um, but it was like, you know, uh, tea, uh, the tea sets and the, and the pottery and, and just these, these an, antiques isn't the right word, but, you know, how we think about it. They wanted that from China and they were going to, you know, distribute it to the wealthy and sell it to them and, and all this stuff. And I remember thinking, wow, like mm -hmm. that's that's interesting that that they were so – like that was a big deal for them. I mean, obviously today, if someone goes to China and brings you back a uh, a token or whatever, you're like, oh, wow, thank you. But but even then, there was a sense in which they understood acquiring nice things, putting them in their home for display or, or using them or however that they, they whatever they did, these, these various things. Um, it kind of goes into that whole ethos of what you're talking about, which is the clothes, the silverware, the China, in this case, the tea where you get it from. That's a little bit more of a political move there. But but they they were very self-aware of 
all sorts of things and maybe ways that we don't think about in 2023 because we kind of project you mentioned earlier we might project this this sense of masculinity but we also project this naivete about the world about what they could know and they knew a lot which is i don't want to insult them but it's every time i read i'm just stunned by how well for the limited resources they had they understood the world yeah no i, I think ryan you are totally spot on um what you say um the scarcity of resources uh, on the one hand, make the availability of items mm, much more uh, tough. It's not easy to source items, to get things, to get stuff. But also uh, that very fact that you don't have, you know, the malls to go to uh, entails that you uh, need to develop a expertise and sensibility and also, you need to be uh, uh, self-conscious about what the message that item you are about to um, having shipped from the other side of the ocean means to you and means to the other people around you. So uh, our houses, our homes are, are you know, overstuffed with, with, with things that we don't use. They are just a mess there. They are just... You know, we, we rent an extra storage room just to get rid of some stuff. We, our lives are full of stuff. But for them, uh, 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 objects weren't stuff. They were uh, texts conveying precise message. They were, they were costly from books to, to a piece of apparel, a waistcoat, a, a pair of shoes, a piece of china, pottery, what you named, uh, the, the, the things that you, uh, um, you, you brought about as examples. To get those things uh, meant that they had to be focused and 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 to talk to people and to uh, pull their strings and to you know to to set in motion a huge network of uh, you know friends and 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 trusted purveyors and so it was complicated it was time consuming it was costly you had you needed money in order to uh, get the things that you needed but the good part is that you know we come very late uh, uh some may say you know this uh, capitalist society makes too many um, things available and they are cheap they are they are made uh we don't know how they are made uh but for them uh, it was important to being able to target that precise object in order to transform that into something that uh, would stay with you for years on end, for decades, for um, the big chunk of your life. So it would become that object will become a part of who you are. It will enlarge your your persona. It will uh, um, help you to make your voice and, and your, your, again, your very body more visible. So uh, scarcity of object on the one hand, but also a higher level of, of, of self-awareness and, and, and expertise again. And China, sure, uh, tea sets and, and China in general, bone China and beautiful dishes and, and, you know, and all the and plates and everything that, could 
convey a message was uh, was praised by them. It was it was sought after. It was it was really part of a, a huge effort that they uh, brought to bear. It's, it's something that uh, they cared about. And then, of course, uh, sorry, no, no, go ahead. no, 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 finish up. No, no, I'm, I'm uh, done. I was going to say, well, so the, the thing that comes to mind when you're saying all this is how did you, how did you go about understanding the world that they live in? I gave a example of something in a book that they were, that they were curious about, but you're, you're talking about uh, the fabrics and, and, and their mentality is, was there manuals? Did you just deduce this from their writing? Like, how do you know this to the level that you do? Because that's, that's a, that's a fascinating thing that you're, you're talking about all this stuff. So where, where was this information contained at? I know. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, precisely. There, there were uh, manuals of style. There were publications and, and texts and, and handbooks explaining how to properly dress, how to uh, carry your body in a proper way, what to do, what to avoid. Everything was scripted. And uh, there were mass publications. Joseph Edison uh, started at the beginning of the 18th century to publish uh, well-known essays about manners and and and, and what was fashionable. So uh, from England, you could easily buy uh, pamphlets and and books about detailing everything about the proper way to uh, carry yourself. So the manual of styles. Uh, the manuals of uh, of conduct, how to conduct yourself, how to behave, uh, were pretty popular. And all of these uh, 18th century upper class individuals n- knew more than something about uh, about that. There was just to give you an example, the famous Lord Chesterfield's letters to his son. It became such came a little bit later in the century, in about the mid 18th century. But it, it exemplifies a widespread need to uh, uh, to get to the sources of, of uh, how to dress, how to behave, what to say in society. Uh, what you are supposed to do or to avoid, and so on and so forth. So, uh, for instance, uh, Chesterfield's letter became a sensation. They became a blockbuster. Everyone had at least one copy of those letters who were, that were published and republished over and over again on both sides of the of the ocean through the entire uh, British Empire, and then the. Uh, what would become the American nation. So there were manuals of styles available. And, and they, these people were focused. They had, um, they, they spent hours every day reading and, 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 put, and, and practicing that kind of uh, style. And yet this is the basic tension that uh, may strike us as something, you know, that doesn't make sense. Uh, how could, these self-aware, uh, um, knowledgeable um, people, person, um, accept, for instance, the brutality of their society. I don't only mean the war, the fact of the war that was uh, uh, that was something that every <laughs> every now and then they had to be 
they had to 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 fight in, but also the brutality that the institutional slavery uh, represents. So how could this civilized, uh, polite, um, knowledgeable individuals put up with the brutality of slavery? Uh, again, this is a. There is no easy answer. Uh, there is no uh, ready-made uh, answer to that question. But but that that's the fact that it may seem uh, nonsensical to us, to um, people who live in the twenty-first century. But that was the basic fact of the eighteenth century that uh, these people were at once. Uh, highly civilized and with uh, tender emotion, the emotional vocabulary was very refined. So you have uh, civilized people with refined emotion who put up with the uh, most brutal institution ever contrived by the human ingenuity. Uh, and, and that is something fascinating about the 18th century. After the Revolutionary War, or maybe leading up to it, was there a battle for style? Um, like, as they're trying to become, form a own nation, like, well, the Brits do it this way, we're going to do it our own way. Did you see a divergence there where they tried to adopt their own style? Or had that already been embedded into the culture? And that kind of led to some of the, the tension that you might have saw. I can see a very formalized society if you have a set of standards and you come across the pond over here and they've kind of shifted, you might get offended over something that was not meant to be offensive, but in a very structured society that can be offensive. Yeah, no, um, sure. Uh, the 1760s uh, is usually referred to as the age of homespun. And it was a moment, you know, at the end of the French and Indian war uh the uh, north north and the british parliament started to levy taxes and, and 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 to be very obnoxious to the colonists in america so uh people living in american cities um who were remained part of the large british empire started to resent that and to boycott for instance the goods coming from from england and and sure uh, clothing was one of the major, uh, more visible uh, objects that they targeted. So they started, rather than um, having uh, the, the fancy fabrics and silks uh, shipped over from Britain, the, the Americans started to envision themselves as something, you know, uh, rugged. And uh, um, rather than... Uh, um, covered in um, reds and, and, you know, the more refined color, they started to don apparels that were uh, greenish, uh, brownish, and just a, a, a nod to the American nature. So the 1760s was precisely the moment when visually Americans started to differentiate themselves from the more refined, the more urban, uh, uh, the more cosmopolitan, uh, British on the other side of the ocean. And they started to uh, devise a strategy that would uh, stick with us <laughs> even to this day. You know, the uh, fact that being rugged and being uh, an outdoors man is uh, touches some 
touches something deep into uh, the American um, consciousness. And that dates back to the 1760s. And that was a reaction against uh, the British. They, these provincials who have been told many times over that they were at the periphery of the empire, the, that they were, like I said, provincial, uh, these very provincials started to uh, to make the most of their provincialism and by turning that into an asset, into a source of an American identity. And, um, and that was leading up in the years leading up to the revolution uh, that became especially important to many people, including Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. For sure. So for for a while, for a few years, they they stopped buying their fancy fabrics and and and, and elegant objects from from England, and they wanted to present themselves as a homespun uh, individual um, Americans to the core. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you have the clothing, you have the showing the leg. Um, but if you were to go back in time and you were to ask, you know, Washington, Jefferson, whoever it might be, but Washington in this case, um, to speak to a group of young men, what might he tell them are the important things outside of what we've already mentioned about being a man? Okay. Well, uh, to get control of your passions and to get control as soon as you, you can of your uh, bodily urges rather than giving way, giving vent to your passion and being, you know, spontaneous as we may uh, praise as a sign of vitality and something good for especially a, a, a young person. For them, it was an embarrassment, embarrassment. So Probably the first thing these uh, 18th century upper class men like Jefferson and Washington would say to a young audience is to uh, take control of all your passions, take control of your urges. Don't 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 yield to uh, to your passions, including sexuality. Of course, everything needs to be held in check. Everything needed for them to be put under the banner of reason and to be a mastery of other men, to be a leader for them meant, first and foremost, to being able to control your own emotions and your own passion rather than uh, to give you an example, rage may may seem to us in the 21st century the uh, one of the side effects of being a real masculine man. You know, sometimes you have this, we have these bouts of rage and we just can't, <laughs> um, we have to let it go. But for them, uh, that would have been... Uh, taken as a uh, example of weakness as something that a weak man a weak person would do rage wasn't considered a very masculine uh, character it was seen as a weakness something that uh, it may be tolerated in you know youngsters and in uh, or in people who belong to the lower 
um, um, parts of society, to the lower ladder of society, but not something that any of these upper class men would um, would praise. So there was, uh, for them, being able to control themselves, to be um, self-conscious, to be aware of what happened around you uh, was uh, more important. So I think uh, they would emphasize education. They would emphasize social hierarchies, which is, again, fortunately, to some extent lost on us. But these people lived in a very hierarchical society. And whether on this side of the ocean or on the other side, the British side on the, of the ocean, but 18th century society uh, wasn't ripe yet for what we consider, you know, the individualism and the fact that everyone has a right to be uh, her own person to 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 or uh, to be free to express uh, whatever um, passes in one's mind. Eighteenth-century society wasn't wasn't ready for that. It was very hierarchical. And the control of emotion, the control over passions, including sexuality, uh, was, uh, was central to the definition of who these people were. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think as I get closer to 40, most of the things that I regret as an adult is losing my temper or not having some form of self-control. Right. And, 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 you know, and on some level, I like to be loud. I like to kind of be uh, maybe funny or, or, or what it might be. And so you kind of let loose a little bit. But the danger there is, is on the other side of the equation, which is when things are tense or whatever, if you lose control, you actually can be manipulated far more than you realize because you don't have the self-control. And so it's kind of this false illusion that you can give yourself, which is that you're in control when really you're being controlled by the emotion. And so... um Probably a lot more wisdom there than maybe modern society would like to admit. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is precisely so. Uh, losing the temper means that you yield to uh, to you, you become you become a slave to your own passions, and that's not something that these actual slave owners uh, were on on the lookout for. They didn't want to appear uh, weak. They wanted to remain in control because, again, uh, we don't have to forget that these people actually owned other human beings. So they knew what uh, violence and brutality and 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 um, meant, especially when that was uh, exerted upon uh, the people who were their chattel, and and yet at the same time they also knew that in order to remain masculine they had to control their own emotions and passions so they were they could be brutal and yet they did that in a way that for us would be subdued or something not very uh, loud or visible they could be loud they were violent they they had their uh, enslaved persons flogged and, and whipped and and brutalized in so many way but the image they wanted to project was one of self-control and control so you don't have control if you don't have self-control that would be a good formula 
to describe the 18th century Virginian upper-class society. What role does religion play in this? Well, that's a major question. So, <laughs> well, it really depends on, on the uh, individuals we put on, under our lens. Uh, as to George Washington, we all know he went to church regularly. Uh, that may, and he used to celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving. So, uh, the, and his letters and other documents that he wrote are replenished, actually fraught with uh, devotional formulae. So you have God uh, um, appearing every now and then regularly. Um, but uh, whether that meant that George Washington was actually religious is an open question. Historians have been debating over that for, for, for centuries. It's, there is no uh, easy answer, unfortunately. But what we can say with a dose of certainty is that religion at the time provided the example of uh, what we were um, addressing before, provided the, a case study for control and self-control. It was a school, an education in uh, assessing your passions, uh, assessing your fears, and rather than yielding to them. So for these people, for um, George Washington, as well as um, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and um, James Madison and all these uh, founders, religion was certainly a way to become wiser, more mature and more masculine, masculine because it was a training a sort of physical training. You had to do certain things. And then, sure, there is an issue about beliefs. And we cannot answer that part of, of the equation. We cannot say for sure whether uh, George Washington believed in God in the way we uh, may want him to. But we can say that religion for that generation meant something uh, as a... Um, praxis as a something practical you do that because you uh by doing that you help your body to gain mastery over your passion so it's an exercise in education and so one of the things that's sticking out from this conversation is if you think about if i'm hearing what you're saying correctly the masculine man of this era the they a they didn't have me and you were talking on zoom they didn't have zoom they didn't have the power that comes on they didn't have as you mentioned about scarcity they didn't have the access to the resources that they needed so there's a sense in which discipline had to permeate their lives for them to be successful and now obviously there's some class stuff about how much you can go up and down especially if you're in Britain, maybe, but maybe in the U.S. is a little bit easier, but still some class issues there um, that you have to overcome. But even the top society, to be successful, you had to exude this discipline and to be maybe a renaissance man, for lack of a better term, but someone who understood a lot about a lot of things and ordered his life in a way that increased the odds of success. And that's one thing when we when we think about modern society, um, you know, whether you're a 15 year old boy or a 35 year old man, 
that's probably not emphasized nearly nearly the same way, which is to be successful. Um, you have to have this rigid discipline. And if you look at the really successful people of our society, the Bezoses, the Gates, the Apple, uh, Steve Jobs, they're extremely disciplined. They, 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 you know, so moral issues on both sides, however you want to frame that, doesn't matter. Both seem to exude the same thing, which is a high, high level of discipline seems to be the connecting point there. No, I think you are perfectly right. Exuding discipline is actually the magic phrase describing the ideals of these 18th century upper class men. Uh, everything would be lost otherwise. Every, the, the sense of purpose and, and the final goal uh, would be lost without discipline. So this sense that they endured hardship and that they didn't, you know, um, just mm, refuse to go down the road they had to uh, makes them probably still an example for us to to imitate the example of a, a successful individual and the leader. Uh, sure, all this discipline, unfortunately, we cannot mm, help emphasizing that, uh, had also a darker mm, side, which is the 18th century society uh, could exude discipline against those who belong to the lower echelon of society, especially and first and foremost, the enslaved population. So there is a darker side of, of this uh, self-training that all these men subjected themselves to. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, for sure, we can we can make a strong case about uh, how important for for Washington and Jefferson was to get an education, which doesn't mean simply you know to to get a degree, but it meant to go through a precise a precise pathway leading up to maturity and wisdom. And all that, that entailed a strong discipline and a strong uh, uh, willpower. So willpower and discipline are actually good, good tools to describe who these men were. And many things they, they would rather prefer not to, <laughs> they did anyway, including uh, the battles they went to. So sometimes, you know, we... Uh, again, there, there is a, a 21st century uh, misunderstanding about what makes a good soldier. So we probably, I have watched too many movies about, you know, brave soldiers who are eager to prove themselves and jump into the battle just to show that they were <laughs> strong and invincible. But for them, it was rather than this kind of uh, let me say, clownish way of portraying what a soldier, real soldier should be. Uh, someone who has a, you know, a tunnel vision, who is totally lost in the moment. For them, at the opposite, at the opposite uh, maintaining discipline and going through what had to be done 
without losing temper, without yielding to fears and anxiety, was the real text of uh, masculinity. So it wasn't because they had an instinct for violence or soldiery uh, that they wanted to, to prove that they were something, you know, uh, that other uh, persons would have praised, but they, 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 they did what they did. They went to the battles, to, to war, uh, because they felt they had to. It was part of a test uh, that made them stronger and yet at the same time, uh, better men. I'm curious if you would characterize Mel Gibson's performance in The Patriot. Um, At the beginning of the movie, he's very hesitant to be in the war. He's fought war. He doesn't really want it. Ultimately, he he has to go. Um, But at least in those first maybe quarter of the movie, whatever it is, he, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't exude, for what I remember, that that kind of modern society warrior mentality until he's really forced into the battle. Would that be maybe a decent characterization of men of his time? Well, certainly so. I think that that's a good uh, portrait of what uh, George Washington and other famous um, officers and soldiers in in general um, how they describe themselves. There, there are letters and other documents that convey precisely uh, this sense of duty and discipline. And that shouldn't be simply as something disingenuous, you know what I mean? Just, you know, something concealing the real rage that should lay beneath, underneath. It was for them important to stay in control, to, uh, to, to, uh, to do an exercise in, in discipline, to uh, not, never lose track of the final goal and the higher ideals, including, first and foremost, the common good. So uh, these people weren't self-serving or just, uh, you know, egotistic and hypocrites. Uh, there's more than that. They had a vision. They wanted to achieve something larger than than their own individuality, their own self. They wanted to move past their own pleasures and passions and what mm, probably for us is over important. So they could endure a lot of pain and and go through ordeals that for for many of us uh, today would be uh, unbearable. They could bear what for us would be unbearable, including the uh, looking and beholding the um, the the uh, violence that was everywhere to be seen, everywhere in society. So it would make us very uncomf- uncomfortable, and fortunately so. But for them, it was part of a, a daily. It was it was a part of life. It was a part of life. And all the while, they try not to lose track of their uh, more important goals. So sometimes we do. Uh, it's understandable. We we ask them the question. Uh, we cannot help asking them. So why didn't you do something more to uh, put a halt to to abolish slavery to to move past that violent society? Why didn't you do more? Well, they would easily answer by saying, you know, there are more urgent matters, more important 
um, uh, goals to achieve. We should keep our aim at what uh, would eventually make the nation, the new nation thrive. So there is this, you know, this sense of what is uh, in the on the forefront and what lies in the background uh, that for them was very important. And by saying that, I mean that, sure, everyone could see uh, people suffering and suffering a lot. But at the same time, uh, in the background, they had this uh, overarching ideal of building a nation and, and making the common good possible. So they could sacrifice the well-being of many individuals in order to achieve that superior goal. And again, discipline mm -hmm. uh, uh, proves to be a major factor in that. Yeah, I remember reading um, some correspondence between Adams and his wife. And I think it was his wife who argued, you know, how is it that we could be fighting for freedom? Yeah, don't forget the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she, she, I think it's her. She says that how can people be fighting for freedom and yet they have slaves? And, and it's it's one of the things that um, I'm always torn on how to make the man or woman of their time argument because rarely do you find that there's at least not some sensible thought in society it's just usually ignored and so when you think about the issue of slavery and but then you look at adams and how he handled the press during his presidency you go well hold on now john hold on you got some problems here too yeah. <laughs> and so there is no perfect point in history but we can take and we can learn and we can look at um, look at the good and also look at the bad and, and try to take the best of the good and, and, and get rid of the best of the bad. They would definitely have critiques over our society as well. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. No, Ryan, I think, again, you're certainly right. Uh, our is an age of individualism. And by saying that, I mean that for us, the individual rights and, and the individual va values uh, are mm, things sacred we cannot bargain on that but these very people live in a totally different society in which the value of individuals uh, as individuals didn't make a, any sense i wouldn't say in, there weren't philosophers who started to to ask questions that we would immediately recognize as uh, uh, not subject to any bargain Immanuel Kant, for instance, the German philosopher, started precisely to ask these kind of questions. Every individual should be considered an end in herself and her and or himself. Uh, we should shouldn't compromise when we come to individual rights and so on and so forth. But by and large, uh, Adams as well as Washington and Jefferson lived in a society in which the community rather than the individual had a far more important value and they it, that was what mattered to them first and foremost uh, sure no one was happy to inflict pain on another uh, sentient being or another human being but yet they lived in a world in which uh 
everything could be sacrificed in order to achieve that um, well-being of the community, starting with the well-being and, and the individual rights of uh, human beings. So a lot could be sacrificed, uh, which, you know, it, we have lost of touch with that, fortunately. Our vocabulary really uh, moves along a different alleys that goes in totally different directions but for them it was you know something that they could accept uh, a lot full of of pain and and violence was a fair price to pay had that made it possible to build a better nation and a better society um the individual inalienable unalienable rights uh didn't make any sense for them something that could not be negotiated uh they were on the lookout for the nation or for the empire before the uh american revolution broke out so there was something larger than individual lives well and i don't think in 2023 we've resolve that debate. If we just go back to COVID, there was very much a debate over communal, state, government, world rights versus individual rights. And so um, th- there, there's there's a sense in which we argue, we might argue more for an individualist in the West, at least today, than they did back then. But also when something like COVID comes along, we find that that we're still we're still not sure on where to draw those lines. And so in the West, we've gotten rid of slavery thankfully, but we still don't, we still haven't resolved the debate. It just looks different today. And so there's, there's still a debate to be had about where to draw that line at in modern society. We certainly have not solved that debate. It still is a vast tension of our societies as well. Uh, and yet they, they, they had a different view of, of on the issue because for them, the individual rights, you know, it could appear as a goal. Uh, we we start with the Declaration of Independence and the beautiful opening, all men are created equal, which may, you know, we come later, we come at the end of a long process. And for us, it, you know, it immediately says that every human being, no matter who he or she is, no matter his or her economic condition, no matter all the factors should be treated with respect and should be considered uh, something worthy immediately. Uh, but for them, it meant uh, the vision, it simply conjured the vision of uh, a society that was yet to come, that had to be built. So eventually, in theory, uh, all men will be de facto equal. All, all individuals will be treated with respect eventually. But that wasn't a description of the society that they lived in and what they saw on a daily basis. So yeah, uh, they they started to, let me put it this way, we still have to solve, to tackle that problem. For them, the problem was just beginning to present itself. It was just the beginning of a basic question whether individual rights must be uh, superior to the welfare of the nation, the community, and so on. Uh, There is no easy once and for all answer to that question. 
but for them, the problem was just um, starting to, um, to come to the surface. It was just the beginning of a long process. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will link to the book in the show notes. Okay. And is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, you mean... Um, Website, social media? Uh, let me think. Um, um, I don't know. I ha- May I think about that? For you can a- think about it and send it to me. But the book is, again, First Among Men. George Washington and the Myth of American Masculinity. We'll link to the book. And then by the time the show notes come out, we'll have any other links that you might want in there. Really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank thank you, Ryan. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.